0: Please.
1: Truth Seekers and Truth Crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and & Rhythm and & Funk and & Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at G at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership bassist and singer Harry Johnson, also known as Barry's son, John. During the 1970s and 1980s, he was a member of groups spanning funk, jazz, R&B, and progressive rock, such as Nova, Lenny White's 29, and Don Blackman's Family Tradition. The latter two included the funk classics Peanut Butter, Kid Stuff, and You Ain't Hip. He also appeared on Bernard Wright's Nard, cameo Single Life, and Atlantic Stars' As the Band Turns albums, and later toured with Jeffrey Osborne and Chic. Along the way, he also recorded with Robert Palmer and saxophonist Kenny G and Najee. Barry, welcome. Hey. How are you?
0: I was good. I was good. How you doing?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you. It's so good to see you.
0: It's so good to be seen.
1: <laughs> Where are you today? I am
0: at home. I am at home in Jamaica, Queens. I still live in Jamaica. All right. Uh, you know, my wife went out, and I'm just sitting here in the, in the porch talking to you.
1: <laughs> wow. Well, that is, is that still a musical hotbed there? Because, I mean, what a history.
0: Yeah, you know, the whole world's changed in the last couple of months. You know, everything kind of shut down. But it's coming back slowly. The guys, the guys who are still here are, you know, they're in, it, they're in it for the long haul. So it's going to be coming back. But it's, you know, it's not the same. It's not the same not
1: at all yeah i told i told tom uh brown when he was on this show uh you know back in 78 or whenever it was that Funkin' for jamaica came out maybe it was a little later in that 79 or but um i you know i thought at first i was from california never been in new york at that point and i thought it was jamaica jamaica not you know new york so Funkin for
0: Jamaica. yeah Locking.
1: yeah I was like, "Wow, that's a lot funkier than uh, reggae I've heard before."
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So, but I've come to learn it's uh. Sir. Yeah.
0: Jamaica Queens, funkin' for Jamaica Queens.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: What is a rich history here in Jamaica Queens? You know, we have this area called Addisley Park, and the the the, uh, the generation that came before us were like the R and B guys and the uh, the jazz guys. You know, you had like. Groups like uh, the Teenagers and Frankie Lyman, those guys, who were like stars in the 50s. Then you had the jazz cast, like John Coltrane, and you had uh, Louis Armstrong, James Brown. They all had houses like three, five minutes from here. So we used to go to James Brown's house, and he, and he had a moat. We would look over the fence and see if he had an alligator in the moat, and, uh, you know, it, it was like we used to go to um, Ella Fitzgerald's house. Uh, we used to go to Lena Horne's house. Count Basie had a house. He had a pool in the back. It was, it was surreal. My first drummer in my first band was Brooke Benton's son, Brooke Benton Jr.
1: Mm.
0: So we used to, I'm talking about seventh grade, eighth grade when I started playing. And we would go to Brooke Benton's house. Brooke Benton was like an official Rat Pack guy. He had a white grand piano in the living room and pictures of him, Sammy, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, on the uh, piano. So this is my first introduction, like, wow, I mean, right here in the hood. I mean, they have this whole section as they brought, which was kind of like uh, our little Hollywood. And uh, it's still there today. It still stands there today. It's a little section in the middle. And uh, Babe Ruth lived out here for a while, and, and he came down here, and um, John Coltrane, I mean, he goes on and on. So many jazz cats moved from Harlem. To here, in Queens, the so-called suburbs, you know. So wow. we grew up you kind know, of like in that shadow. And uh, I remember us playing music, and she would call Brooks Benton's wife and say, "Come look at the kids play. Watch the kids play." And he'd come downstairs in his robe and slippers, Brooke Benton, you know, rainy night in Georgia, and he'd look at us and go like, "You remember Lurch? Remember Lurch in the Ash uh, yeah. Family?" Yeah. He'd go like. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> He was a grouchy old dude, but it was like, it was Brooke Fenton, who, you know, we didn't know nothing. So we were playing music, and uh, he kind of like came down to give us some inspiration, but um, that's how I started, you know, just playing in the basements. Out here in Queens, we got basements all over the place, more so than Brooklyn, so we had a lot of basement bands, not garage bands, basement bands. And I think that was what led to all the musicians in Queens. We had, like, basements, so you could rehearse on a Saturday. You could rehearse uh with your band and you know it, it sure kept me out of trouble i i spent so much time in the basement learning how to play and, and sing and do stuff that i didn't have time to get in trouble so we had our own little musical game and you didn't cross lines my band was five carat soul winky's band winky was over there with the, uh, the fireballs you had maybe 20 bands in this neighborhood and you didn't cross lines I was one of the first guys to cross lines because, you know, the other bands had gigs. <laughs> I could go in 18 and go and make $150 on the weekend, three gigs, 50 cents a piece, are you kidding me? 50 bucks a piece? So I would go over there and play with them, I will play with here, play, play with them, but it, it constantly kept me occupied a lot, out of trouble, and learn how to play. And, uh, you know, ended up going for 40 years, 50 years going by, here we are. What,
1: what, what? Wow, uh, what what a uh, foundation and environment! What 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 drew you to the bass specifically?
0: Well, I was actually a singer first. I was singing first. Uh, we had I went to a private school, and um, the guitar player says we're playing like a, we're doing like a sitting on the dock of the bay and James Brown song because you should play bass because that way you know we can have a bass player and you can sing at the same time. Well, I was too stupid to know that it's difficult to sing and play at the same time, so I just did it. A lot of guys can't do that. And they ask me today, how the hell do you do that? And they go, I don't know. I didn't even know that it was supposed to be hard, so I just did it. Um, a lot of those records you mentioned, I do the vocals for a lot of that stuff. For all of Buddy White's albums, I do the lead vocals on, on, you know, Peanut Butter. Me and Don Blackman do all the vocals on Peanut Butter, Best of Friends, all that stuff. I did the vocals on three albums for him, and I did the vocals for Kenny G. Um, we had a song called Hi, How You Doing. Kenny first hit record was my voice. And, uh, you know, I'm one of those unsung guys that you, you know, oh, this is the same guy who's singing, you know, and, um, with Lenny White, I did most of the vocals. Um, uh, Jeffrey Osborne let me do some duets with him. I did some duets with Jennifer Holiday. So I've always been a singer-bass player. I love playing bass, but I consider myself a singer-bass player. Okay. You know, and, um, it's kind of gotten in the way, the bass has been kind of like there, but it's kind of like it's gotten in the way because I'm playing. I'm, they hired me to play, and then I want to sing, and then I want to sing, and the people go, you should be singing more. So it's just been a, a long battle with that, that whole identity thing, you know. But
1: you got to look at somebody like Larry Graham, though, you know, I mean.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, but, you know, only a few get through. you got Larry Graham, you got Sting, you've got, uh, um, uh, who else?
1: Paul McCartney. Huh? Paul McCartney
0: Paul McCartney exactly so I, I kind of saw myself as that you know but um um yeah a lot of people don't know that I did most of the vocals and that stuff you know so I did the vocal with Lisa Fisher I did a hit record with Lisa Fisher called Love You Madly under the group title name Candela on Arista Records you know I did a lot of stuff for Arista Records you know well
1: I'm, you know. I'm, I'm gonna take you through some of that in, in more detail but um You know, I I wanted to also know, um, Barry, Mm -hmm. aside from your environment in Queens, who were some of your your biggest musical influences, you know, as you were, uh, you know, in your teens and and getting into music?
0: You said said all the Motown stuff, seeing Jackson 5 on Ed Sullivan, seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, um, seeing, uh, like, I mean, the Motown stuff, the James Jameson, I didn't realize that there was one guy playing on these bass lines. and it was, it was really too much for me in the beginning. I it was, it was, it was way ahead because he was a jazz cat. So he was playing stuff that I just couldn't, I just, it just went over my head. But eventually, as I got older, I started listening to him and I'm like, oh, this man was a was pure genius. You had the lead vocals, uh, whether it was, uh, you know, whoever it was. Um, Marvin Gaye, or, or, or whoever, or Mary Wells, and you had his bass line under it, and he's just doing counter melodies that go right with it perfectly. I mean, just, the man was completely unsung, unappreciated, and just the genius behind that rhythm section. And unfortunately, he died broke and drunk and unappreciated, but he was one of my influences. I got older, of course, Larry Graham. I had a chance to see Larry Graham. He came to my college. That was it. I started thumping pretty much before everybody in my neighborhood, before Marcus Miller, before uh, uh, different guys in the neighborhood. And in fact, one time somebody told me that Marcus had come to one of my gigs and saw me doing that. He was like, what is he doing? Now he's, now he's the thump kid, you know, he does everything to do with his stuff. But I'm like maybe four years older than Marcus, so he was right behind, behind, so he would come up. But boy, did he uh, soak it in, take it in, and take it to the next level. I, I really respect his, uh, his musicianship. And he's a good guy too, he never really tripped, you know, a great producer, great musician, he went to music and art. And I basically went to, um, you know, I went to Queens College for music, but I only went like two years, and then I got, a, I, got I went with Nova, I left to go to Europe to go to, to play with Nova, to make some albums, you know, with Nard and my quality. and that was Nard's first production.
1: How, yeah. how did you connect with Nova?
0: Well, Nova was, uh, like, I was in the basement playing um, with the Firebolts, a um, local band here, you know, Winky, Flight, did you know Winky? That was his band, the guy that was, he was the guy on fucking But Jamaica, you know, that 160 feet, no, oh, Tom Brown, he's a funny, funny guy. That's Winky. He was in a band called the Firebolts. Like I said, they was gigging on weekends, so I could make 150 bucks on a weekend. So I was gigging with them, he was rehearsing, Narada was playing with the Mahavishnu Orchestra, and he was living up in Jamaica East States. And the drummer said, hey, yeah, uh, this is Narada Michael Walden. Cool. Why, why? Plays with Mahavishnu, taking the place of Billy Cobbett. So we jamming. You know, we had the basically jamming. I'm jamming with Narada. So uh, we did that a couple of times. He said, hey, would you like to go to London? Would you like to go to Europe? I was like, tell me more. You know? Oh, oh. So it was Nova. He was doing his first production and uh, it was a group called Nova, a confusion group called Nova. And uh I was about how old how
1: how old were you at that time?
0: I was like twenty one. Yeah, twenty
1: twenty one.
0: And um then I went to i went there um to record with them, and already produced it. Then the group moved to Boulder, Colorado, then we did some little touring, then we toured in Europe. All through all through uh, Europe, and um, and then they broke up, (laughs) and then I came back to the states, and uh, then I got the gig with Lenny
1: White in '29. So wait, the first the first Nova album though was '77. So for people who aren't familiar with them, yeah, uh, you know they were sort of a fusion thing. And how how did that differ from what you had been playing and what you had wanted to play?
0: Well. I was pretty much on the on the on the um the fusion thing at that point. I had uh, been playing all the R and B stuff and all the funk stuff, but you know I had been uh, into the Stanley Clark stuff and Chick Corea and all those guys. And my band had been experimenting, with playing that stuff. You know, people would look at us like we're crazy. You know, somebody's dick, but we would we would incorporate some of the funky stuff from the fusion stuff into our you know into what we were doing. So I was totally aware of it, and I started to get into the jazz thing more. And so, you know, it wasn't too far of a stretch, because I was still playing and singing, and, and they wanted me to kind of give them a little soul to it, to make it more, less, you know, strict and, you know, um, anal. you know what I mean? It was kind of like tight, name or so. So Narnia said, do your thing, you know, just go ahead, you know, sing, you know. he wanted me to sing, and I wrote a couple of tunes on there, and, and it became, it changed what they were doing. but. You know they like the direction it was going
1: in you know you did two like two albums. two albums with them right
0: three
1: three yeah, yeah. And, and did did they achieve the kind of success they had hoped to i mean what were their yeah. aspirations
0: no 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 that the manager uh kind of did some things that were that kind of hurt the band and so then they disbanded so you know they didn't get a chance to um you know, we, it, it was all there. I mean, we had the backing, we had the management, but the management kind of had a different vision, you know, that echo. So the leaders of the band, who was Grotto Risticci and, and Elio Diana, three Italians from Italy, and uh, one English guy, Rick Farnell, on drums, and then me from Jamaica, Queens. It was kind of a, a diverse thing. It was interesting. And I had lived with three Italians, you know, eating uh, nookie and bread and cheese and, you know, drinking wine. It was, very, it was a very... Uh, enlightening experience you know
1: what what was uh, it like for you when you first did I mean how big were some of the audiences you did with them
0: well we when we were in Boulder, Colorado we did like local clubs in fact we had done a thing with um we played uh we played a club where um Donny Hathaway played I had a chance to meet him there Uh, and uh, we would just do a small club trying to get the band going get the act going get the uh, stuff going but then, when we went back to to Europe, then we toured with this group called a better known group called Caravan, and we toured all through Scotland, Leeds, all through England, and that was the biggest tour we had done. We didn't play that much in the states after that, you know. But we recorded, so we did three albums um, together. They, I think, they had two before me.
1: Did, did you guys also do some covers on the live shows or only the original? No,
0: no, it was all straight art music, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. So what was your impression of when you first met uh, Narada?
0: Narada was like nobody you ever met. He was the most positive guy, the most happy guy, the most spiritual guy. And he was he was a, a, a disciple of Sri Chimnoi at the time. So he was really, um, you know, imbued with this spirit of music and consciousness and meditation and... You know, it was deep, <laughs> but he was a great guy, and he still is to this day.
1: Yeah, yeah, very energetic and positive, and
0: very energetic, and very talented, just overly talented. Just it just seeps out of him. Great drummer too. My gosh, yeah,
1: awesome,
0: awesome.
1: Yeah, I think that got pushed to the back burner with all his production and everything, but he, he could sure. play. He yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah. that didn't hurt his pocket, though. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, good guy.
1: So what transpired after Nova broke up? uh, What happened with you?
0: After Nova broke up, I got married and had two kids and tried to juggle between fatherhood and
1: career drive.
0: And I juggled that for quite some time, as long as I could, about 15 years. Uh, Then I did, um, during that period, I recorded the Don Blackman album. I, I played with Tom Brown. We played at this club in Manhattan uh in the village um it's casing right now but that was before funk was your, funk, funk was well, let,
1: let me let me talk to you a little bit about don blackman so okay unfortunately he's not around to you know do this show so what can you tell funk fans and music fans in general about his talent and what he was like as a as a, as a guy
0: don blackman was the most incredible human being i had ever met in the flesh He's kind of like, you take George Duke, Herbie Hancock, Joe Sample, I mean, all the famous keyboard guys, you know, John Coltrane, he was just a natural, gifted talent. You could hear anything. He could fart, and he could tell you what key it is. I, one time I tested him, I put my hand on the piano, just, and he told me every note, top to bottom. Perfect pitch, which sometimes makes you a little nuts. Right? I wouldn't I want wouldn't it for the world. I'll take a relative pitch any day. Because you hear everything. And so he was a comedian. He would make you laugh until you peed your pants. Literally, I've seen him do that. I've seen him make a girl pee her pants. Funny man always found the funny. It was more important for him to find the funny than anything else. He was brave sometimes obnoxious, looking for the funny. Didn't work all the time, but we consider ourselves brothers. You know, we are, uh, speaking of hip, <laughs> they used to call us the sumo brothers. Okay, I used to have my hair and dreads like that. And uh, he was, he was hundro, 100 head, and I was sumo. And we used to do stuff, man, we used to do crazy stuff in the airports. And uh, just have fun, man. When we did the album, oh my gosh. When we did the album, it was like a big party. Balloons and marijuana and just having a good time in Manhattan. It was like, it was just, we were young and just crazy and uh, life was good and we were recording. And this album reflects it. Everything on this album, he knew what he wanted. That's his cousin Desiree and this Sherry Snyder. He had his little crew and uh he was a virgo so he was a he was a um perfectionist so you mix perfect pitch with a perfectionist you know kind of kind of much for one person to deal with
1: yeah but i'm but but it came through that record is a classic in my opinion and for early 80s especially it was one of the last great complete funk albums you know
0: that's true and, and and when it came out, people, a lot of people didn't get it. It was like, I don't get it. I don't understand because we went from funk stuff to ballad stuff. Donald was an amazing ballad writer, okay. And so, but those are the two things. He was he was totally into the funkadelic stuff, totally, and totally into the ballad because he comes from the church, the church guy. Grew up in the church. His church was across the street from his house, so he grew up playing all in the church. So. You know it was like yeah do that was donald blackwood but a lot of people didn't get it in the beginning but as it's gotten older i have heard that from around the world i've been in different parts of the world and you know you are the guy on the donald blackwood album wow i had no idea and they're looking at me with reverence like well that was him i mean i played every line he wanted me to play it wasn't me You know, say but no 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 you nailed it in the sound it was just a magic time man i don't think you'll ever get that sound again there's no sequencing there's no there's no uh, you know he's playing that stuff we're playing that stuff real time take after take a lot of times in maybe two takes and we rehearsed it but we went in there and recorded it old school style and it sounds you're never going to get that sound again because those are real people working off of each other not a computer not a freaking computer that's the difference if you compare it to what's being done today everybody's in a room somewhere by themselves trying to act like the other people and it it, you know, you can you can do some amazing things like that, but it ain't gonna sound like that. So, but Donald was the real deal. Um, he always said he didn't think he was gonna live very long. I don't know why he was obsessed with that. But he was obsessed with it. He talked about it all the time. He had a coffin in his house. And he used to scare the kids. Oh, we did some gigs. First gig I ever did with him, he came out of a coffin. We was on we was in Brooklyn, and he rolled a coffin. I said, what are you doing? He has a coffin. His cousin worked at at the funeral home, his cousin. So he bought a coffin. He gets in the coffin. We're in the truck. I don't believe this shit. We were rolling into the gig. Everybody's like, oh my God. Opens up, pull the coffin out. Donald gets out the coffin. <laughs> we go to the gig. You know what happens? It freaking, we have a torrential rain. We had to run off the stage. It was an outside thing. We had to run because it was it was biblical raining. It was unbelievable. I don't think you should do that anymore. He did it one more time. Just before he passed. We did a, a gig at New York College and he got in the coffin, rolled it in, and he couldn't open it. <laughs> We're on the gig re- getting ready to play, getting ready to hit. <laughs> couldn't open it! He was going after that. About uh, maybe, maybe two years after that, he died.
1: Ugh! Wow.
0: Obsessed with it. Obsessed with it. I don't that, know thats I mean.
1: definitely like a funkadelic type of thing, right there.
0: Absolutely, he lived it. He lived it all the way, man. He—he—he he, he lived it to the end, man. He was—he was an incredible anomaly. Never met nothing, nobody like him, and I don't think you ever will again.
1: I caught on uh, YouTube. You can find that tribute you guys did for him a few years back.
0: Yeah, on so Mondays, Mobile Mondays.
1: That was really, yeah. really nice.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Lenny was there. Lenny came, and Lenny was actually hurting because he was in an accident. His arm was injured, but he played anyway. And his daughter was there, and it was great. It was really heartfelt and great. You know, we didn't have that much time, but and then the guitar player who's playing with us now, Ronnie Drayton, he just passed. Yeah. He just, yeah, great guitar player from the neighborhood. He was our rock guy. He was our Jamaica Queens rock guy. He was. He was doing Hendrix and playing acoustic guitar in high school. You know, um, you know, he was just uh, something else, another one. But he's gone now too.
1: Now on that Don Blackman record, you were not playing on "Yabba Dabba Doo," right?
0: Yabba Dabba? No, that was that was uh, keyboard bass.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, but you're on everything else, I think. Yes, sir. Yeah, and. Yeah so many uh great ones on that record and
0: funny story man because um uh, originally i was at a town he had marcus playing on it and something about it was at that time marcus was still trying to find his sound and he, it was a little too thin so and i didn't find this out till later on so i uh marcus had done a couple of tracks so i did it went over them, and did the rest of the album but um i didn't have to say so in that but
1: yeah so huh, interesting yeah um yeah and and uh don was such a good composer too
0: oh man incredible incredible that song he did um morning sunrise is a, a ballad that he did and uh one day when he was a living in the house there he said Barry, come on here come. he used to play a Farfisa organ and he's been playing that song for years before we recorded it he said you got to come listen to this so he Tell me, come in the room, close my eyes. This guy had Christmas lights all on the ceiling. And in inside of the Christmas lights, he had, <laughs> he had He-Man dinner cartons. Like the He-Man, remember the old, uh, He-Man, like, TV dinners?
1: Oh, a Hungry Man.
0: Hungry Man TV dinner. Yeah. Yeah, Hungry Man. So he had the food out, of course, the cartons. And he had it stuck inside of the Christmas lights. And he's got his spark here. So he, I'm closing my eyes and listening. Goes, da 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 da-da-da, And it was like, my god, it was surreal. It was like that feeling for that song. He wanted to recreate that on the album. And he did. He did. And that, I remember that night, it was just, when I heard that song, it was like, wow, that was really, really close to his heart. And I think we captured it on that album. Because uh, he had been playing that song for a while. He wrote that song a long time ago. And uh, yeah, I think we had na- we nailed it. Uh, uh, we, we we captured it. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I'm I miss him every day. I miss him every day. You see, I still have his picture here in my house. I I think about him all the time. You know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, getting the uh, the timeline right for the viewers and listeners, I think that was like around eighty two. But you connected with yeah. Lenny in the late seventies. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. Um, how did you? Get with Lenny.
0: Well, Lenny's from the neighborhood. Also, Lenny was, uh, like I said, he was part of that that group that was the Jazz Cats that played with the Jazz Cats. You know, the John Coltranes and and the uh, um, uh, the, the, um, the Jazz Cats of the local neighborhood. So he was in between the jazz stuff and the fusion stuff because Lenny went from jazz to fusion. And so my name was in the neighborhood. You know, um, from various people who knew him. And uh, a good keyboard, another keyboard player, genius from the neighborhood named Denzel Miller, is who said, you got to get Barry Johnson. You got to get Johnson, You got to get Barry. He's the guy to replace Marcus because Marcus was going on with his career and going on and doing stuff. So they had tours to do. So then when I came back, uh, you know, he heard the Nova album. Then he heard the Nova album and said, oh, yeah, come on. You yeah, know, come on, let's do it. So that's how I got it. They, they told they told him about me and then he heard my the records I had just done with Nova, and he said it was a perfect fit for me, so I was honored, you know, I was honored to do it. I didn't know I'd end up singing and, and, and being the front man, you know, but it, it, it happened that way, you know, it was kind of like, me and Don were doing most of the vocals for me at the time, because it was a guy band, it was all guys. It was like, we were all guys playing, you know, fusion, funk, and rock, and Nick Moran on guitar, Eddie Martinez on guitar, two great guitar players. And, uh, you know, it was just wild times, man. We just went for it and we would like. Most of our fans, most of our fans before Peanut Butter were young white guys. Mm-hmm. You know, we would play in San Francisco. You know, we call it, we used to call it, uh, <laughs> we used to call it um, our latent, I forgot what we called it. It was like, uh, you know, all these guys, we're going to play these concerts, all guys. What is this, you know?
1: Yeah.
0: So, but uh, after we did Peanut Butter, we started doing more. R&B shows more black shows we opened up for Prince we opened up for Prince and Rick James we did uh you know we did more of that circuit so that was fun you know
1: yeah I have um, that one here
0: Yeah, it is that was it that was the first one yes sir yeah that's right
1: <laughs> so I mean this because um, I was you know listening to Astral Pirates and um, uh, the one that came be- before that one um, Streamline? Streamline, yeah, I love Streamline, yeah. Well, all those records are great, but uh, this one definitely was a a conscious move towards more R&B funk.
0: Yeah, well, you know, he's trying to get, you know, trying to do something that's more relatable to everyday people. You know, the fusion thing is is nice, but you know, it came to a point where it's not making no money, you know? It's like it's like the jazz cast. Now fusion is like dead. It's like, you know, it's like jazz is almost dead in some places. So, you know, you get kids, you get older, you go try to make some money. Let's make a hit record. Let's go for it. So well, they, you re- got to hit record with peanut butter, which do Donald wrote.
1: You, do you remember uh, what it was like in the studio when you first heard the uh, riff and and the peanut butter concept, and how did that develop? It,
0: it was it was Donald all the way. It was like really okay, let's do it. You know, when you're feeling hungry, ain't got nothing to eat. Show me to the kitchen, peanut butter. Can't be beat, yeah! It's like okay, let's do it. Why not? So that was just an extension of Donald, and Lenny was willing to go to the next, you know, next degree level. He proved that he could play, play with Chick Corea, play with uh, all the jazz cats. He we was seventeen, and put up bitches with Miles, so he didn't have to prove that anymore. So let's have some fun, let's make some music, and maybe get, you know, make some money. So that's where he was going. A lot of the critics didn't like it. You know, the elite jazz guys, you know, oh, how could you sell out and do this? Yeah, okay. Yeah. I hear you, but, you know, we're trying to eat.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, and R&B radio was all over it. So how did you guys feel, or how did you personally feel when you were hearing it on the radio and you knew that this was a big hit?
0: It was great, man. It was surreal, man. It was just like, wow. We're on the radio, and people are hearing about it, and we're doing this tour, and it was, just, it was an exciting time. I hated leaving my family that much, you know, because it was I was at a crucial point where I was raising kids or things like that, but this is what, you know, this is what this is what it was, you know. So I used to leave and go and, and uh do it for you know, it was great, man. It was just a wonderful time, man. It was a wonderful time. It was like the punk thing was happening, the college campuses, you know, the black schools. I mean, it opened up to us more so than them the jazz fusion stuff, which was kind of like I said, you know, young white guys screaming, Dinner! You know, you kind of sit up there, she can play how many I mean, listen. you know, and you're trying to, you know, it's like, that's cool, but I like involving people. I like people to be a part of it. I like people to, you know, put your hands up in the air. Oh, I love that, you know, I, and it's not the same with, with the, uh, the fusion stuff, you know, it's like, it's kind of like Cerebral, they just listen.
1: Right, I, I was always a little surprised that Peanut Butter never got picked up by like Skippy or Jiff or somebody for a year. i
0: know. I'm waiting for it to happen. <laughs> I think it's going to happen because I think it's going to happen because you know stuff comes out later on. And it's, it's perfect. It's perfect for that, and um, uh, thank God his kids had the right to, to the uh, you know, to to the um the portfolio. So if it happens, they'll 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 benefit from it. But that's gone all the way, all the way.
1: Yeah. That's what I, I found out later. I wasn't so hip to Don yet at that point. Yes, I
0: know. But, um, yeah. You was know, it was at like 29 and Lenny White, featuring Lenny White, but it really wasn't featuring Lenny White because it was really a group effort. effort. It was his way of, of having a group effort, but he couldn't let go of the featuring thing. And that was kind of the problem why it broke up. I was like, wait a minute. You know, we're all contributing. You know, and let's just have it, you know, like, you know, let's just have it 29 and, and share in some of the, you know, the profits and... He, and you know, and, and and the publishing and things like that, he couldn't do it. He couldn't let it go. So the band disbanded. We were, we were. I mean, we had Larry Dunn from the Fire producing us. We had the uh, the Earth with the Fire horns. We did a ballad where I sang the ballad, um, a song called um, "Back to You." Back to You. I did it, and Larry was just like, "You sound just like Bertie White, man." It's like incredible. It's like we had so much potential, and. Um, we had Diddy Bridgewater sitting back around, we had everybody in LA. The whole LA group we, we had at our disposal. But you know, you couldn't get many couldn't get rid of you know not being in control of everything. So why should we keep, you know, creating this great music and we and we're not being being acknowledged for it, you know? Right. You know, I mean it's the same thing with uh, Kenny G. Okay, I sang your song, but nobody knows. Nobody knows it's me. So why would they, you know, why do I keep doing it? They try to give me some stuff after that, but they didn't want to give me any points. They didn't want to pay me. And I was like, that's okay. You know, so I did a couple of tracks um, for Kenny, but I refused like, to release it because they didn't want to give me any points. They was like, I, I proved to you that my voice is marketable. They know the sound. Now you want to do another one. I want to give another one away for free. Come on.
1: Well, that's one of the reasons I really uh, encourage people to check out that tribute from a few years ago, because that shows you actually singing. It's a, and you know, it's nice evidence that's more current that really shows you and your abilities both on bass and singing, so.
0: That's true, that's true, and like I said, a lot of people don't put the two things together. Oh, the bass player and the singer. So, you know, in things like this, I love doing because it's just, you just, you you know, I don't care about it, but it's nice to get the story straight. It's right. nice to be acknowledged for what you do, and to go through whole like you know. I mean, I've been places where I've heard my voice on the radio, and nobody knows me, and I'm looking like, wow, this is really cool. <laughs> nobody knows me, but it's like I'm enjoying it too. But it's like, hey, it's, you know, yeah. <laughs> well, well,
1: how did how did where did the where did the Sun John come from?
0: That came from uh, um, well, like Narda and Corrado from the group Nova. They had different names, so uh, the group the guys from Nova started calling me Sun John. You know, like, they had their little street shimmy names, diva deep just and that, so they just called me Sonny
1: Well, I'm just thinking, going by an alias probably didn't help what you're talking about.
0: That's true. It did help. I did everything I could to not be not be recognized. <laughs> not only that, my brother, my brother is an actor, right? He's, uh, I don't know if you knew that. mm Yeah, he's an actor, so we grew up in, in the house, and my mother let us she let me play music, I had bands, we rehearsed. She let him do his stand-up comedy act and we would give plays in the garage and charge a fee, you know, and then I have a band and we played again. Anyway, he grew up, she, we, she she supported our dreams because her father never let her do it. So my brother used to always say, I'm gonna be an actor, I'm gonna be an actor. I like, oh, shit! you from Jamaica. you Where you you You're fat, you're black,
1: where you at? Who's the old, oldest? He is,
0: he is, and uh, then he got this movie called Die Hard. You know, and it's like, uh, okay, I got this. I got this movie, Die Hard. Bruce Willis, really? Wow. Okay. So we didn't know it was going to be Die Hard. We knew it was going to be like a smash hit. I don't know. Did you ever see that movie?
1: I love that. Was he wasn't the uh, cop? Was he? Yes, he was. That's your brother.
0: That's my brother. Wow. Reginald Bell Johnson.
1: I just so, I just showed that movie. My son is 16. I showed it to him like a year ago for the first time. I said, here it is, the classic. You're going to see it. You're going to experience it. Changed
0: it changed everything. It changed everything. And it changed his life. It changed everything. So now, if you can Google him, you say, well, who, does regular Val Johnson have a brother? Now I'm known as Barry Val Johnson. <laughs> Google Just put it in there. I don't know how to correct Google. I don't know how to correct it. Put good it, it, the real information there, Because somebody else does it. I don't know. Do you know anything about that? The stuff that he got me in there is Barry Bell Johnson. Anywho, um, he went there and did that, and you know we've always been playing off of each other and supporting each other. And wow, I watched that's him. Cool. I was out. I was out touring stuff before him. He was still in the basement. Look, you know, going to auditions. And then he finally got Die Hard, he finally got the little brown Ghostbusters. He was this little movie called Remo Williams. And then he got Family Matters. And then that was it. He got he got the show Family Matters and, with Urkel and his kids and he was on there for like it, 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 it were thirteen years, thirteen, fourteen years. And wow. It well,
1: good show. For him. So, wow, yeah. that's that's well, you know, this show's gonna help clarify some of these things for sure. Yes, I wanna absolutely. show up that next one. Yeah. So, so you know, you had Peanut Butter, you came right back with Kid Stuff. Right, right. You I know. think
0: Peanut Butter was a bigger hit than Kid Stuff. But, you know, we had done uh, American Bandstand, we did Donna Shore, we did Mike Douglas. You know, little skits on there, or something like that, which, which is how big the record was at the time. But after we did Kid Stuff, it kind of like fizzled out, After that, everything kind of like changed for whatever reason. Because we were all inputting and making, it wasn't just... You know, a Lady White thing. Now it was a group thing. It was twenty nine. We wanted to be under that umbrella. Let's let's do it. Let's we'll just let all things fly. If we just get that straight now, but he couldn't let it go. He just couldn't let it go. So Did, suffice to say, you've not seen him have another hit of that magnitude because it was a group thing. You know, ego is a terrible thing. It's like, you know,
1: you, just, you, you know, were only on those like two this, on those two records, or say again, were you? Well, you were also on the next record, though, too, right? Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so
1: you are we on that We three,
0: three albums with them. That's it. That was the last one we did. I was on a beach in California somewhere, yeah. That's with Jocelyn Smith. Um, before that, it was Tanya Willoughby, the girl we had. Um, yeah, um, that was Jocelyn Smith. The last album was Jocelyn Smith and Carla Vaughn, girl, girl from uh, California. Very talented. Keyboard player, singer. We were going in different directions, you know, it was changing. And I think it was too much um, to sustain.
1: It was too much for the critics to deal with.
0: And, you know, they put you in a bag. And the music used to put you in a
1: bag, and they want you to stay there. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon. Or consider donating at FunkinStiff.net. Thank you very much.